0: Today. Dominic Barfield here and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC Podcast we don't ask for much in return we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts, Acast and leave us a review obviously a five-star review would be great and we really appreciate if you'd um, really just take a couple of minutes of time to leave us a review there so joining um, Brian and myself in the studio we're going to talk to, to the wonderful Tom Greensmith who is one of our uh, who is our cardiothoracic Profusion Fellow and staff clinician in ECC, and we thought we'd have a chat with him, um, which was a suggestion actually in one of the reviews about diabetic ketoacidosis. So, uh, thank you, Tom, for joining us in the in the studio. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, we we, we try occasionally. So, um, so I thought a, a a term like diabetic ketoacidosis is suppose to get people probably on point listening. So, we are, are we can have patients that are diabetic, ketotic, and acidotic and they can have a a spectrum of presentation
1: would you would you would you agree with that yes absolutely i mean obviously quite a lot of them that are dka won't be coming to uh, to see us especially if they're eating and sort of otherwise okay but just a little bit groggy and a bit rubbish, Um, right the way through to those patients that are utterly moribund that you can barely find a pulse uh, have been maybe unwell for days and it's been missed for various reasons and of course those are the ones where extremely careful management is going to be uh, required rather than just a slight adjustment to their sort of current insulin protocol and a bit of close watching at home sort of thing. but uh, at the bad end of the spectrum, you know, certainly we see not an infrequent number of fatalities if you're poor enough to need to come to a referral centre with your, with your DKA. Uh, but even in practice, I think there's, um, there's things that we can do to try and avoid us getting to that stage as well in the first place because, of course, many people can't afford referral and uh, you know, DKA's are routinely and extremely well treated uh, by many, many vets in practice uh, without the fancy sort of bells and whistles that we have here.
0: Fair enough. So so, in a, so when we're talking about the, the sicker ones that uh, that come in, so the the first thing that you do, obviously, after a, an assessment, your first sort of treatment strategy would revolve around some form of, of fluid therapy. Do you have any any uh, fluid that you, you worry about sort of giving or uh, what uh, to
1: give or prefer to give? I mean, routinely, I worry about giving pretty much any fluid that isn't Hartman's or compound sodium lactate just because... A lot of fluids that 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 aren't those um, are maybe not ideal choices. Maybe have absolute contraindications to them. I mean, some places that maybe only have a saline. You know, if that's your only sort of wet drug that you can administer IV, then you're going to be limited by that. But um, before deciding exactly what fluid to use, I mean, obviously uh, in emergency practice for coming here and also here, always take part of the emergency sort of database. Uh, sort of check your electrolytes as well, because I think. For me, the big defining choice of what fluid am I going to give is probably going to be based on how deranged the sodium level is, which, obviously, you know, is a, a frequent um, alteration in DKA animals. If it's reasonably normal, if it's sort of you know between one twenty-five, one fifty-five, then I'll probably use uh, compound sodium lactate (CSL) uh, or Hartmann's. Um, if it's really outside of those ranges, if we're talking a sodium of you know, 120 or lower or 160 or higher, then you're gonna to need to adjust your choice. But certainly, if you have a patient that is that poorly, that's that abnormal, that's when I'd be seeking uh, advice from a specialist center, even if not to send a patient there just to get an idea of, of how we can do advanced sort of sodium management, because um, that's that's a bit that might bite you in the bottom uh, a day or two later if you correct their sodium too quickly, uh, if it is very, very abnormal. So I think for me, that's the, the major thing with the fluid choice something wet needs to be given ideally something that's isotonic um, and ideally even more ideally something that's balanced so I'd always reach for a bag of, of CSL I mean Dr Hartman's developed his fluid for use in, in uh, diabetic children so it would seem a perfect choice So he
0: did Professor at Washington State or something wasn't anyway. he? <laughs> um, so you were um so, excellent so, so Hartman's would be a, a fluid choice and and we were, we were talking a bit when the mics were closed about that that kind of like the length of time before you start anything anything else so um people still love speak to Simon about uh, fluid therapy and people talk about the terms of maintenance and also the question is, you know what it what is maintenance, um. But if we have an idea about two to you know four mils per kilo per hour somewhere in 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 there, do you do you have a, a certain amount that you that you would give as a rule of thumb, or you base it on more information about what the patient's weight was prior to it, how percentage do you think it's dehydrated, and actually work out a, a fluid plan to think about what you want to correct over a period of, of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you have got access to recent weights, that's always. You know, ideal. And that's why the, you know, the weighing the animal whenever it used to go to the clinic was an important part of of what I did when I did sort of general practice work. Because although it might not seem useful at the time, if something suddenly happens with that patient, you know, if they've suddenly lost, you know, uh, fluid, because if they otherwise appear to have good muscle definition and body condition, but they weigh two kilos less, hopefully not for a cat, that would be very bad, um, then you know that's probably fluid loss they've got. And so you know that, well, I need to correct probably a a two litre level of. Of uh, sort of dehydration. If you've not got that sort of information available to you, um, then I do obviously go off the physical exam. I mean, in humans, certainly in children, I think that they they normally estimate that the fluid deficit is far greater than you would otherwise detect just from physical exam alone. Um, so they tend to actually, in the moribund children, think of between like a 12 to a 15% deficit. Now, I'm not sure I'm bold enough to uh, to suggest that I would immediately start giving patients 10 mils per kilo per hour for Ten hours, and obviously you always have to take into account: Are we talking about a dog or a cat? Uh, Because of course, cats being far less tolerant of large volumes of fluid, and also contraindications like underlying heart disease. But if you put all of those to one side, if we've got a dehydrated patient, and that happens for a variety of reasons, like you know losing fluid with the glucose in the urine, the vomiting, the not eating, etc., then definitely giving them some fluid in the first instance is going to help to reduce their glucose, improve perfusion um, and make them feel generally better. You could go really deep into it as some people do in studies about well, how many hours of fluids do you give them. Um, personally I'd give them at least kind of two to four um, because actually just with fluids alone you know, you're going to bring that glucose down a little bit. It's hard to quantify how much and sometimes it can actually come down a decent amount so if you were to start other therapies too soon, you might end up in a sticky situation whereby everything's changing and, and maybe you're not exactly sure as to the, the reason why. Um, I think the important thing is kind of going from your baseline and whether it's a pre-existing weight or whether it's your physical exam, knowing that you're going to reassess that patient in sort of two, four, six hours from when you start the therapy, ideally at all three of those time points, so you kind of know where you're at. I would, if I've got time, uh, sit down and try and make a really good kind of fluid plan with, you know, what's my deficit, what's my maintenance, what are my ongoing losses. But realistically, uh, if you're extremely busy, um, that might not be something that you can do. In those cases, I'll maybe not worry so much about ongoing losses, but I'll try and replace that deficit um, and add on maintenance. As we said, you know, whether you want to use two miles per kilo per hour or four miles per kilo per hour um, onto the deficit and sort of try and improve their hydration level by maybe a quarter to a half of what I think they are lacking uh, in that time period and then reassess. I think it's the critical part is to reassess them before then deciding, well, do I change my plan? Actually, is this patient weeing out so much that I've had no effect whatsoever on on the hydration status uh, or are we improved? Is the patient looking brighter? Do I now think about, okay, I can start doing some other therapies um, in that time? It also gives me a chance to look at all the the database bloods that i got initially and sort of think about what problems i'm going to encounter when i next check them uh, and what's going to crop up in therapy for each patient so maybe
0: we should ask that, that at this point too, so, because you know we'd probably put a patient on some intravenous fluids and we'll you know we can pontificate about the rate but it's probably more than people would normally feel comfortable with but because yes. that marked uh, amount of dehydration that they they have in general and that and the um and the even polyuria associated with that with their hyperglycemia. So, so what what labs do you like to run? I don't know why I'm using the term labs, but, uh, but it seems quite, maybe I've listened too much to Scott Weingart. But,
1: but anyway, what labs would you like to, to run? So, um, I mean, I'm very lucky in that both here and before coming here I had access to a fantastic sort of laboratory where I've been able to do blood gas and acid base and stuff throughout my, my career. And so for me, if I think a patient's going to have DKA, I do definitely want to have your blood gas status, your acid-base status, a glucose, a ketones would be absolutely ideal. Um, and I would normally pull my, my more routine blood work if I was able to. And I think that's the key point, if I was able to, because it's not going to change what I do in my immediate therapy. But if I get that blood back, you know, six, 12 hours later or whatever, and I see that I've got raging changes to my you know, liver values or to my kidneys or phosphate or all these sorts of things it's going to allow me to kind of maybe think about reasons either why this patient's become deranged in the first place or things that i also have to have to correct um, i think if i was going to strip it down to the absolute minimum it'd definitely be a blood a blood glucose and an electrolyte panel and probably a, just a, a simple blood smear and evaluation of blood smear um, just to look for things like do i think we've got subjectively more neutrophils than we should have you know if this is a really really sick patient you could see you know abnormalities in terms of platelet numbers or all these sorts of things um, and those are things that I think the majority of places will have access to you know some places might have uh, ketonometers that they can use which is wonderful to measure the the major ketone if you don't have that of course you can use the the urine sticks and you can use that on urine or on um, sort of plasma or serum the only problem is they don't detect obviously the major um, sort of ketone that we worry about so if you see it, if it comes up on there, wonderful, you know, there's ketones present. If you don't see it, it might not mean a huge amount. And also, when your patient's sort of getting better, you have to remember that if it disappears from the urine, well, that's, that's lovely, but it's going to be a sequential process. So it's still going to be there in their blood for some time anyway. Um, so because of that, it, it's a bit limited, but I suppose we have to work within the confines of, of what we have.
0: So it might help us with our diagnosis, like because we use a ketometer, um, don't we, don't or have access to, to one, and we might find a, a number and say yeah it's ketotic, but actually, we, it's not something that we use hourly or, or, or you know six hourly or, yeah. or anything like that. It's probably more every day if if that to yeah, sort of see absolutely. how things are pro- progressing. So I suppose that the the, the mm, the, uh, i suppose with a, uh, a a test strip it probably doesn't give you the same uh quantitative no data, not at all but at least it gives you an idea yeah, is it of positive something. Or, or negative potentially
1: so, and if, if it's positive on a, a urine ketone meter you can bet that the blood value is going to be pretty high mm. um so yeah i think that that's where it is helpful
0: yeah and um with the glucometers that you use, sort of here and and in the past I suppose you're just sort of saying it's high. I imagine that. Yes. Do you find that the numbers when they get above, say, twenty millimoles per liter? I'm not quite sure how to convert that to our uh, US friends. But um, when you get like high, high values, it, it gets a bit um, cagey, doesn't it, about how accurate it actually is? High yes. high. And-
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, if you've got a patient come in and you you think they look as if you know they've got DKA, uh, and then you check a blood glucose, they've had no therapy, and the glucose is five. You sort of know probably something weird going on here, but like you say, if it's high, um, then certainly they actually have these these handheld meters is far less reliable. But at least then you know the number is high, and you also have a, a baseline against which you can go uh, later on when you sort of start your your insulin therapy. Excellent, excellent. So, um, well,
0: that's a good segue into starting insulin therapy. Perhaps. So, what 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 therapies do we Do, do you standardly use for for these?
1: Patients? So I've only ever really used one one therapy for them, and that's when I'm happy with the diagnosis, I'm happy that I've done a little bit to rehydrate them, their glucose has fallen a little bit, um, then I'm going to start sort of normally a continuous rate infusion of, of a neutral insulin. Um, and that for me is going to be the, the best thing, because I can titrate it quickly, you know, I, I know I don't need to worry about absorption issues. Of course if you give something sub q it's not going to be absorbed in a dehydrated patient you know there are protocols for using intramuscular neutral insulin um, it's a lot of injections because i mean most of those protocols are, are almost hourly checkings of blood glucose and an and injection so obviously we have a protocol here in terms of uh, cri of, of insulin and how to make it up but those protocols are readily available uh, you know online in numerous different sort of emergency books uh, and I think that would be most most people, most ER doctors, and certainly most of them that's a sort of standard go-to thing to do. Uh, it's just worth making sure that you absolutely know that as soon as you start the insulin therapy, you're going to cause some other derangements as well, just by the sheer nature that you are giving a patient some insulin. Um, and so you've kind of pre-planned for those, pre-thought to, through what's going to happen based on the lab work that you've already got. So in that time when they're rehydrating, I'll also think about what do I need to be concerned for when we do start the insulin, and making sure you check that insulin frequently enough. Uh, certainly initially, until you sort of start to get towards a steady state, because it's a fickle thing. Uh, the sort of the dynamics of, of glucose and insulin level in an individual patient. I've certainly been caught out before when I have thought, oh, "I, I won't check that now for for six hours," and then you check it six hours later, and you get a bit terrified when the machine reads three, uh, and you think, "Oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. It was forty-eight earlier." Uh, so. It's just close attention to to, to detail. Um, I'm struggling to to think about yeah, too many other protocols that I'd be happy using. I certainly would would never ever give sub Q insulin simply because the fact when the patient does become better hydrated and they finally absorb what you've given, God knows how many doses they're gonna absorb over what time frame and what that's gonna to do to them. And then of course the sub Q stuff lasts for so many hours longer, whereas The neutral stuff really only is going to last kind of between two and four hours uh, most of the time. So it means that you've got a bit of a safety margin there as well. So,
0: so the neutral insulin that we that we give um or it's called regular insulin as well that neutral or regular i think yeah, soluble
1: regular and neutral are all sol- the sol- same
0: the same um so when you put that into a uh, a fluid bag so through other, the other thing to remember is that it will it will bind to the plastic that's yes, on there, went to see see when you actually put a concentration or follow any recipe or protocol that that's out there that make sure that you attach a line to it and and run it through because it will bind to that um, to, to the to the plastic of the bag, and so you, um, and that might mean that if you don't do that, you'll get different concentrations going through of, of insulin. And, um, and I think most of the protocols try to have, as you, uh, as you alluded to, uh, a certain concentration of insulin that's administered um, per uh, per kilo of patient over a period yeah. of time. So you should get a stepwise decrease in your blood glucose of around. Somewhere between I think it's four to six millimoles per hour potentially, but it's as you said, like every patient is a bit different. Yeah. So it is meant to give a, a certain amount, not in a, a massive hit. But you, but I suppose it depends on, on the on the patient, and it's worthwhile to to, to check them. But dependingly, if they're normally trending, then. You, you can normally not expect a, a a massive a massive dip. Yeah. Um. So you said about uh, anticipating the effects of what that insulin is going to do. I, was, I, was, I should probably say as well. So, you, um, we both got no experience about giving other really forms of insulin. I've only given glargine sort of once, and I didn't have any any neutral insulin. Um. And it's meant to work a bit like a neutral insulin if you give it intramuscularly. But again, I would refer people to uh, to have a look at whatever text about that. But lent insulin is really got no place in, yep, in treating a DKA, eh? no. so, so I think you need to try and source some for, for that, but you know source some as, at the time that you're rehydrating the patient, give you some, some yep, time, perfect to, time. time to do that. So so you so you should anticipate the changes that that's, that that's going to occur, so what are these changes that we should anticipate?
1: Well uh, with insulin alone uh, things like sort of changes in potassium and certainly in our phosphate and of course in our glucose, hopefully that one goes without saying. Um, the really tough thing with these patients is if they are really, really collapsed in terms of their cardiovascular system, they might have a high plasma level of potassium and you think, oh great, insulin's gonna help me with that. But actually you forget that they've got a very low total body potassium level. You still need to you know, not allow the the plasma potassium to go too high because that's what's gonna cause problems. But when they start feeling better, these patients are definitely going to need potassium supplementation as well. So it's a big shift when you go from your acute phase treatment right the way through. Um, so potassium initially for me, I mean, it's it's quite common that they are a little bit higher than, than normal, so I don't worry too much about that straight away. If the potassium is low when you start, then you do need to take that into account and realistically sort of spike whatever fluids it is you are, you are giving because you can expect a pretty decent drop in the, the patient's potassium when you start insulin. With phosphate, again, hopefully I've got a baseline of that. Um, but we know that as soon as you start the insulin, you're going to kick back up your sort of normal metabolic processes, your carbohydrate metabolism. And so your phosphate is going to, in some cases, drop, and in some cases, absolutely plummet. Uh, and of course, if it does do that, then certainly in things like cats, you really do run the risk of, of a massive hemolytic crisis. Uh, and then you have to worry about, well, now I need to source blood and these sorts of things. So. Depending on the the baseline phosphate level, you might also want to consider uh, adding in phosphate. Um, It's one of those things that I never used to do in practice. Uh, I'm not sure how comfortable I would have felt about giving it in practice. And I suppose maybe not everywhere has got machines that measure phosphate either. I mean, certainly here we have the, in our in-house lab, we've got a little sort of vet scan machine that does measure phosphate big problem with that is of course if they are hemolyzing it can't measure phosphate anymore and you're very much in the dark about what's going on Just less than ideal um and then you not that we measure it but things like magnesium are just something to to keep in the background because if actually you're getting absolutely no response to your insulin um being low in magnesium is something to to think about just because low magnesium does cause poor sensitivity to the effects of insulin whether it's endogenous or exogenous um, so for me, those are the, the major kind of things that I think about, I worry about. Um, and that's why normally within sort of um, between three and six hours, let's say, of starting an insulin therapy, in addition to the frequent glucose checks I'm doing, I'm probably going to recheck some of those values, certainly my electrolytes. Um, I might not check phosphate straight away, depends on what the baseline value is. That maybe is more of an every six to 12 hours for, for me until I know that I'm happy it's kind of stable. It's not going to go too crazy. Um, but because the way we check our electrolytes here is, is actually with a, a blood gas acid-base analyzer, for me that's perfect because it also allows me to see what's happening with their acid-base status and tinker with that, which normally makes them feel better. And because the acid-base status can affect their potassium as well in terms of its movement inside and outside of cells and that kind of jazz that um, I find that's very useful to, to recheck. Certainly right at the start when you don't know exactly what's going to happen in every single patient, to do those frequent checks and then as you get more confident with what's happening okay now we sort of hit our steady state we can maybe tail back because of course as soon as the glucose in the patient falls to a certain level we're going to actually start giving them glucose Um, and hopefully at that point we're a bit more stable a bit more static and we're not going to have as major crazy shifts so we'll tail back the the monitoring slightly at that point as well so it seems to be
0: to um, so to try and remove those ketones through the through the body. So we're trying to get that glucose level down, and then when the glucose level does come down to a uh, less than ten, um, then obviously we don't want to um, give more insulin without giving some some dextrose to, uh, in, into that into that as well. So we tend to halve the the rate of insulin administration and administer some two and a half percent dextrose solution at the time, yeah. and this is just to help get rid of the ketones and obviously if the patient is is uh is still is still unwell um it's it always surprised me actually how precipitously the potassium level falls yeah and i think these these are the patients where that uh you you, you push the published limits normally and and maybe even sometimes exceed of, of what is a, a you know a safe rate to give uh potassium supplementation as well because i think these these ones do can require like a a huge amount, can't they?
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So, um, um, excellent. so, so then, so if we're happy with with that that sort of flow of of um, um, insulin therapy and, and management and having a look at the electrolytes, actually, you, you mentioned about looking at the blood gas. So, what, so what what changes? Just, uh, uh, you know, what do you tweak and change? Like looking at a blood gas, just well, succinctly.
1: I suppose when I look at the the blood gas, we're looking at, you know, the the pH, and I might not necessarily tweak anything at all unless that pH is is close to the levels that I consider inconsistent with ongoing life, is how I term it to the students. So even if, you know, the pH, which should normally be 7.4, if it's 7.3, 7.2, 7.1, but there's nothing too much else on there, I might not do too much. If it's 6.8, then yes, I probably have to take some emergency action. Um, there's not really much that I tweak on the blood gas, or much that I can tweak on the blood gas, apart from if I absolutely have to giving the patient some sodium bicarbonate. But because when you start your therapy, even just rehydrating the patient with a you know a buffered isotonic fluid, the the acid base status is going to improve. And so it's not the kind of thing I think. Oh goodness, his pH is seven. I better give him some bicarb now. If you don't absolutely have to jump in and do it, then I won't do, uh, because I might find that within two hours of just some fluids now, our pH is seven point two, and everything's moving in the right direction. But if I genuinely think, you know, we're gonna we're gonna pass away far too rapidly for our therapy to have any effect, then I will consider being extremely conservative and giving some bicarbonate to try and improve the pH, just again for things like insulin sensitivity and all the cellular function and that sort of stuff. Um, it also is very useful if you've got a life-threateningly high potassium, a bit of sodium bicarbonate helps to, uh, to pump that inside the cells as well. But it's the sort of thing that I would recommend people shy away from unless they are able to measure these things and really a a comfortable doing if they find they're absolutely you know they have to do it and they've never done it before they're a bit worried then definitely to to call someone that knows whether it's in the practice or outside the practice um you know or a referral center who's happy to give advice um just because the the number of times i've had to give sodium bicarbonate to these guys is i think pretty pretty low for how commonly i've been asked the question by students interns and, and you know other residents in terms of oh should we give it some uh, normally my answer is is he dying yes let's give some no uh, let's probably hold off and just see how things progress uh, especially because these guys are sometimes a little bit well a little bit stuporous they might not be breathing wonderfully and of course you give them sodium bicarbonate it's going to make lots of co2 and then they have to get rid of that and if they're not breathing normally then actually they might not get rid of it and we might cause more problems than actually we uh we could possibly fix just by using it so it's a Sparing Goldilocks level. It's it's a it's a good point because it, because I suppose that if you're talking about like
0: when do we when when do we give bicarb, it's probably based on a number of a number of factors. But if I was asked you a, a rule of thumb about potassium and phosphate, you'd probably say if in doubt, give it. Like well, sorry, definitely for for potassium, but you know probably if you've got some for phosph, you know a way of supplementing phosphate, probably do that as well. And yeah. you're unlikely to cause uh, any any harm to the patient. Whereas yes. uh, yeah. bicarb, I suppose you as you said, it probably you need to have a, actually look at the, uh, the the pH of the patient and yeah. work out whether it's um, um, causing a problem. I suppose you said that my, my old uh, mentor used to say that it depends on the formulation of the potassium and uh, phosphate that you have. But we used to have like vials of potassium chloride uh, in Australia, so you could just add a bit of both to to a, to a yeah. bag of fluids. Whereas we've got um, a, a different phosphate supplementation here, and I suppose it depends on really what you what you have, how you can. Mix that into the fluids that you're giving, or run it as a separate CRI.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, some people, some people mix and match sort of potassium chloride with potassium phosphate. Uh, Some people don't have that luxury, Uh, and then you're sort of doing things with what was it called? I used to have Foston which took me hours to find out what level of phosphate was actually in Foston. Um Those sorts of those sorts of things. Oddly, practices that uh, are truly mixed um, or large animal practices might be a good place to get hold of phosphate if you uh, need in to bind, just because it is something that they seem to stock or, or keep more commonly than we do because of the diseases of, of large animals, which um, I found was interesting and useful in my first few years in practice. That's good to know.
0: Um, so... Uh Anything else about um, uh, their treatment? We can we move on to, well, you know, looking for an underlying cause. So, so, where do you where do you tend to look? And obviously, maybe at what point in time do you tend to look for an underlying cause?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend, doesn't it? If the patient's got pre-existing diabetes uh, mellitus, then you may or may not have an underlying cause. It might just be that they've managed to get into some food become a little bit unwell or it might be that someone new is looking after the pet and is giving them the wrong dose of insulin and we've all gone out of whack but in every case that that sort of I've seen I've tried as best I can to whether it's just with the history or whether it's with testing rule out do I have a precipitating event uh, and you know common things are common so even a mild upset stomach if it puts a patient off eating could theoretically go on to precipitate a, a DK episode if we're not careful with it. When they get to that sort of level and they're terribly ill, then definitely I'm going to think about anything like that. So, have they got old insulin? Are they you know, storing it appropriately? Are they using it appropriately? Has there been any change to the caregiver? Uh, has there been any you know recent inconsequential seeming illness? You know, a cough. Cold, a sneeze, a runny eye, those sorts of things. Um, when we have the patients in with us and they are very, very, very flat, uh, especially because it's useful to know, certainly in cats that might have a high incidence of sort of renal disease, um, I will always um, try and take a cysto sample uh, just to, to look for UTI, which is a pretty frequent cause. I'll do that in dogs as well. Um, what I won't do is I won't delay giving them fluids in order to say, well, I want to get the sister sample first. These guys, they're going to have dilute urine regardless. They've got an osmotic diuresis from all the glucose floating around and sucking the fluid out of the tubules into the wee. So I know I'm going to see that. I know that a dilute urine doesn't equate to, well, they've got renal disease. um, But it does allow me to look for an active sediment. You know, even if I can't culture it straight away, I can go to the microscope. I can have a look do I have bugs, those sorts of things. And if I can't see anything there and I can't find a precipitating cause, then, you know, you might need to think about some some more, uh, advanced is the wrong word because they're not advanced at all, but some more in-depth diagnostics. So things like, you know, do I scan the abdomen? Do I look to see if we've got a tumour, a lump, bump, an abscess, something odd going on? Do I look in the chest with, you know, radiographs, look for a, a precipitating event there? And also just silly things like skin infections, anything that you can think that's going to make a diabetic patient not very stable. When they come in with no history of diabetes, then you still have to think about all those things, because it could be they've not been diagnosed. So again, you question the owner, well, have we actually had a bit of weight loss, a bit of PUPD over the last few weeks, months? Oh, you did, but you just thought he was getting old. Well, fair enough. It's probably actually then that it's just very poor management, um, not by the vets, but by the the disease itself not being managed uh, coming in. But you still have to think, well, why have I suddenly gone downhill now? What's this sudden change? And in, I think not. it's not infrequently that we do find a precipitating cause, but we certainly don't find it in, in you know every case for sure. Uh, but sod's law, if you don't look for it, it'll be there. Someone else will find it and you feel very stupid, which I know it happened to me a couple of times.
0: Do you always give uh, antibiotics when you take a cystic sample or do you always look for an active sediment or does it depend
1: on what species? Uh, probably depends on what species to some extent personally i'm very stingy with antibiotics um i i would give antibiotics only if i'm either pretty certain they have an infection you know i found some intracellular bacteria in the urine or in a cytology of wherever on earth i've taken it from Um, or that i thought that to not give antibiotics would be you know unduly uh, damaging to the patient you know they're in septic shock or something or i think they're in septic shock I'm going to give them antibiotics without knowing it for sure. I'm going to try and take samples first because that's the only way you can confirm it. Because then, when they're on antibiotics, all those tests are far less useful. Um, but I do only really give them if I've got definite evidence it's there, um, or if I think if I don't give this and it's got it, it'll be dead in two hours, and then that's on that's on me. Um, thankfully, most of these patients are not in a hideously septic state, uh, and if they are, then. Well, they're they're even more poorly than your normal poorly DKA and with a significantly worse outcome, I'm sure. Um, I think if you asked sort of 10 different vets, especially if you lined up criticalists and medics and people, you'd get different answers. But I'm personally a very stingy individual with antibiotics. I have treated some severe infections with only three day courses of some antibiotics. And, you know, the recommendations some people have of Four weeks of antibiotics for pneumonia. I see.
0: I I suppose suppose what I was uh, getting at was more. because sometimes it might be difficult to ascertain whether a urinary tract infection exists if they're polyuric and and don't have a highly concentrated urine, and that that was more to take yeah. not, not in not in general other things. But um, uh, on but my soapbox, <laughs> did. which is a good soapbox to have, uh, by the way. Um, so you, uh, um, so that that's good, and, and and as long as you you've looked for other things, you are happy with that. When do you? Um, so, at what stage do you sort of change the management to the patient? At what stage do you think I'm going to start feeding the patient or changing its insulin regime?
1: So, we'd have them on that continuous insulin. Uh, normally, I mean, it's not it's not an immediate thing. It tends to take you know a day to a couple of days for them to sort of start feeling better. But you tend to be, for me at least, it's pretty obvious the patient's feeling better you know the cat is now standing at the front of its kennel and desperately trying to grab any food bowl that goes within 10 meters or the dog when you like take it out for a walk is is running to a, a food bowl i think for me interest to eat i'm gonna want to give them some food not a huge amount of food um but i'm gonna want to make sure they definitely are interested give them a tiny amount uh, and then as long as they're tolerating that and we don't get sort of crazy changes with their glucose level then i'll probably give them very very small uh, I and mean, I mean, we might be talking you know, teaspoon quantities for, for cats or, you know, single meatball of some wet food for dogs um, every hour, two hours going through. The aim is not to have these great big uh, ups and downs of, of glucose for me um, but I don't use anything really fancy other than well, does this patient look as if they would be keen to eat now? And if it's a yes, then hey, let's give them some food. I can think of nothing worse than being hungry and, uh, and not eating, as my fiancé will, I'm sure, attest to.
0: As far as that, I I think the um, you need to understand that when you when you feed these patients, the glucose is going to go sky high. So your management, if you're doing a continuous insulin infusion, is not going to be as 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 effective. And yes, it's probably the time to think about switching it to another another therapy. Or or,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I suppose rightly or wrongly, uh, you never told me off during my training, but maybe you'll tell me off now. Um, I would, uh, I tend to make sure that they definitely have a keen interest in food for a number of hours, accepting the fact that the glucose is going to go up. But I suppose it's the degree of magnitude to which it goes up as to whether I need to alter the rate of the insulin dose. Because if I go altering the rate of that dose, then I'm going to be making it more difficult for myself, I think, when I do try and transition them. Um instead I'd like to get to a point where I'm absolutely happy that when I offer this animal a meal it's gonna eat that meal and then I can think about right well let's do that, let's offer them a meal, let's stop the continuous insulin and then let's give them a, a you know a moderate dose so it may be the same dose that patient used to be on if it was a, a previous diabetic patient or it might just be the starting sort of listed dose for whichever insulin you choose you want to try and use longer term and then again we're checking the blood glucose uh, far less frequently than with a continuous infusion but you can't just step away from it completely for obvious reasons uh, and then see if we can titrate whatever dose it is we've given over the coming couple of days before hopefully having them at a level where they're sort of stable enough to go home on that dose for you know a week two weeks before then having another sort of reassessment and seeing if we have to tweak things further for them
0: yeah absolutely I, th- I think um, people get quite focused on getting things normal but uh, but definitely expect to to start in a couple of times as as well and and you know just put them on some insulin and leave them be for a couple of weeks before we start mucking yeah. around too much and and more of the, the long-term management um I, you know i think i was trying to get at before is just that um you can't control when you start feeding indeterminate amounts you can't control the blood glucose as well even on a cri of of, of neutral insulin so just don't worry about panicking with that too much like some insulin is good but just forget about what the glucose is is per se that, yes yeah, yeah. And, and and so as you as you said if they're eating a bit more uh, um respectfully or eating a bit a bit better then then start start to think about sort of transitioning them absolutely um do you think there's anything particularly contentious or or as he asked what do you have you changed your management of uh, of diabetic ketoacidotic patients?
1: Do you think? Um, you know, I'm not sure that I've changed it massively, apart from probably a more proactive use of phosphate. Definitely much, much, much more proactive in terms of doing things that, for, for good reason, I, I didn't used to do frequently in general practice, like placing central venous catheters. I mean, I, I did do it not infrequently because uh, i was lucky enough to have them in practice um but now of course you know if a dka came in it was that poorly that's one of my sort of things to try and get done in kind of the first 12 hours as well let's get a, a central line in them uh, rightly or wrongly because of course it leads people to take an awful lot of blood samples and, and maybe leads us down a path of actually causing problems like anemia or you know being a nidus for infection those sorts of things um but I think those are the, the main things. I always used to do the tweaking uh, of you know blood gas if I absolutely had to. I always did the same kind of potassium uh, management protocol. Um, I always just used to do the basic things as well, just you know weigh that patient every four to six hours so I kind of know if you're gaining weight and I'm giving you fluid, it's probably because your hydration is improving. It's, um, there's nothing I think that I'm, I've changed that's particularly groundbreaking. Uh, maybe I've got a slightly better attention to detail. Uh, I think that's probably come, though, Based purely on the fact that if I only have 10 patients to look after compared to seeing 60 in a shift and having the inpatients to look after, I'm physically more able to uh, sit on my thumbs and and think about things and look at patients frequently and, well, worry, frankly. Um, But otherwise, I don't think I have changed anything too too much.
0: Do you think there's anything contentious in the literature about their management? (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, so you're going to pull out some obscure paper i haven't read i'm sure i'm sure that there would be um certain there would be about you know when do you start how soon do you start giving them insulin I'm, I'm certain i read a paper on that um and i think you know you can find contention in almost anything that you that you look at uh, in the same way you know what's the better induction agent is it profile fax alone i think really familiarity is going to be one of the the safest ways forward with patients who are this poorly and so if you've got something that you do that you find works maybe next time you have a patient you make a little tweak uh, based on what sort of you know from textbooks or things is is meant to be gold standard um if you're already kind of doing all those things then and it's working for you i'm not sure i'd rush to change too much what i wouldn't do is immediately change my management of half the case based on you know uh, a few a few papers but i can't think of too many contentious things that i've read about really for dka which is surprising if you uh, if you think about it
0: absolutely absolutely it's not an, not necessarily an uncommon thing that we that we see but yeah. Um, but yeah well um <clears throat> i think you you uh, gave a, a wonderful little summary at the end so i think we'll we'll, we'll wrap it up there so many thanks uh, tom for your your time today Um, And thank you for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a five-star review, that would be great. And we'll place some show notes in the RVC pages, so just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email rvc.ac.uk or tweet at donbarfield. Until next time, bye-bye.